Welcome to Life and Godliness. I am your host, Joanna Simpson, otherwise known as Josim. So many of us are struggling, stuck, lost, wounded, and hopeless when Jesus came so we could be free and live an abundant life. He wants us to enjoy him and enjoy life. But how can we truly do this if we are bogged down by life's problems? Well, Life and Godliness with Josim hopes to help persons enjoy life with Christ by sharing Christ-inspired solutions to everyday problems and digging up deep-rooted mindsets that skew our perception of the Father. To quote a popular artist, life is hard, but God is good, and he's patient in our journeys. So join us as we talk about life and godliness. Hi friends, welcome back to the fourth episode of Life and Godliness. This week's topic is a hard topic that requires humility and facing up to insecurities within ourselves and others that can manifest in harmful ways to those we interact with. Again, like church hurt, we are all somewhat capable of doing these things, and so we must recognize that the grace of God is key to living a life of wholeness in Christ. Today, we'll be interviewing um, Mr. Remy Diedrich, the teaching pastor from Cedar Brook Church in Wisconsin. He has a wife and three children and has written over four books focused on healing from hurts. He will be discussing his book, Broken Trust, and the issue of spiritual abuse with us today. Welcome to the show, Remy. I must say I was blown away by how insightful your book was and your willingness to be interviewed on this show. Thank you so much. Oh, that's very kind. Thank you, Joanna. I'm glad to be here. Yes. So just for our listeners, um, could you tell us a little bit about yourself? Who is Remy Diedrich? (laughs) Okay. Uh, Well, let's see. Most recently, uh, I started, I shouldn't say most recently, but 17 years ago, I started a church here in my town in western Wisconsin. Mm -hmm. And uh, we've grown that church. It's It's been a very successful church, and I'm actually in the process of transitioning out of my role. I turned over my lead pastor role to uh, my associate, who's now the lead pastor, and I'll be spending uh, the last year on staff, but simply as a teaching pastor, and then I'm looking to do other things beyond uh, my current position. And in addition to uh, being a pastor, I've, as you've mentioned, I think uh, I've now written six books, and so I'm an author. And um, yeah, that's pretty much what I I, uh, spend my time doing. Okay, thank you. So what would you say led you to committing your life to Christ? Uh, It was back in uh, when I was 19. I was in college. And I think it was just uh, an awareness that I was missing something significant. I I felt an emptiness. I felt a lack of direction in my life. Mm-hmm. And I had always believed in God. Uh, I I thought God was out there. I just didn't realize that he was personal. Mm-hmm. And when I met someone who had a personal relationship with, with God, who talked to him, spoke to him, read, read the Bible, and seemed to uh, hear from God, I was intrigued by that. And really, that's all it took to convince me, like, oh, I, I, I didn't realize that God could be personal. And once I realized that God wanted to be personal, mm-hmm. uh, I just redirected my life to, you know, invite Christ into my life, and uh, kind of the rest is history. That's great. It's always, you know, refreshing to hear how people, um, you know, came to Christ and came to know Him as their Lord and Savior. Um. So, what what would you say inspired right. the the writing of this book, Broken Trust? Um, 
our, our church was started by another church uh, about 20 miles from our town. And it was at the time that they helped us get started. It was started, uh, it was a very healthy church. Mm-hmm. And the pastor was a friend of mine. And it was really a grace-based church, uh, very supportive and very positive. And then my friend left to start another church in another town, another state. Mm-hmm. And they hired a new pastor who I didn't actually care for that much. He just, his personality was a little uh, over the top and I, I just never really got along with him, but that, that was fine. You know, people are different and not everyone has to be like me. So that was fine. But over time, um, he slowly developed some strained theology um, and it started to really hurt the church and he became very controlling and families were being split up as a result of his uh, leadership mm-hmm. and people started leaving the church and people started sharing with me what was going on. Mm-hmm. And so I, I felt like, boy, I wish I could do something to help, help the people discern what to do in this situation. So I, I had a blog, I still have a blog. It's called readingremy.com. And I, so I wrote a number of probably about 10 different blog posts on my blog, just about what, what do you do if you're in a spiritually abusive church? Mm-hmm. to try to help those people. I was thinking specifically of those people just down the road and hoping that some of them would read it and pass my advice along. But what I found to be true was um, that those 10 blog posts quickly became my most read uh, posts. You know, I had written at the time, I had written 300 blog posts and those were always wow. at the top. Every day I'd go, I'd go check and I'd go, wow, people are reading these posts from around the world. Mm-hmm. And, after, you know, I think two years later, they were still at the top of the list. I thought, well, maybe, gee, maybe this is a topic I should write a book on. I had written at the time, I'd written a few books, and I thought, maybe this is another book that God wants me to write. So I, that's what I did. I wrote it basically to help the people in a situation just like they were down the street from me. Mm. Wow. Okay. So, so this issue of spiritual abuse is, is, is an interesting term because we are familiar with physical abuse, emotional abuse, verbal abuse, sexual abuse. Um, but spiritual abuse mm-hmm. is this is a new term that um, perhaps not many people know about. So how would you define spiritual abuse? How could you describe mm-hmm. it? Well, I like to, in defining spiritual abuse, I like to link it to other kinds of abuse. Really, all abuse happens when one person breaks into the personal space of another person to benefit themselves at the expense of their victim. Mm-hmm. So with physical abuse, you know, you're, you're, you're hurting someone physically. Sexual abuse, you know, that's obvious. You're taking something sexually from someone. Uh, but in all, all kinds of abuse, really the bottom line of all abuse is what the, what the abuser is benefiting from is they're, they're gaining control. They're gaining power over another person which this makes them feel very good. And so with spiritual abuse, it's the same thing. One person is gaining power over another by using God as the force. So instead of physical violence, or they're, they're using spiritual violence, you could say. And often that's intertwined with both verbal and emotional abuse. So um, spiritual abuse is like emotional abuse and verbal abuse, but you factor in... Uh, 
God in the Bible and church. So you're using God as kind of your weapon. Like if you don't do what I say, then you're a bad person. God won't like you or even, you know, the, the extreme, you're going to go to hell if you don't do what I tell you to do. Mm. Yeah. So even in this description of spiritual abuse, you know, I would think of perhaps a cult, you know, some, you know, I guess what came to mind initially for me were those kinds of groups that had snakes around the neck, you know, those kind of things that are kind oh. of far out. Um, is that what spiritual abuse sure. is or is there a range, a continuum? Well, yeah, certainly that would, what you're describing would be in the range, but I would say that would be to the extreme. I, actually, from my perspective, spiritual abuse is often much more subtle. Oh. It's where uh, a pastor or a leader, or it doesn't have to be a leader in the church. It can be just one one friend to another friend. It's where you're intimidating the other person, and it can be very subtle. It can be implied. Like if you tell me that um, uh, you haven't prayed in the last seven days, and I would say, oh, you haven't prayed seven for the last seven. What do you think God thinks about that, Joanna? Yeah. And just And so just in the tone of my voice, I'm implying that you're not a very good person, that God can't really love you if you haven't prayed for the last seven days. And suddenly over time, I can just convince you that, that you're not a very good person. Mm -hmm. And I can maybe even manipulate you to do the things that I want you to do. So, so you will hopefully think that I now am happy with you. Wow. So this means that, you know, and, and because even with the term spiritual abuse, you know, I'm thinking more leader to congregants or, you know, like, let's say a spiritual father or mother to their mentee. But you are saying that this could also happen within friendships, within the kind of, you know, equal partnerships as well. Sure, sure. All the time. And I think within within abusive churches, it's it kind of spreads from you know, pastor to congregant, from congregant to one another, even within families, and then families become spiritually abusive where the it's often the father or often the husband who is using God and scripture to control their families and manipulate them to get them to do what they want to do. And it sounds, you know, the, the subtle part is it all sounds godly. I mean, how can you argue with God or how can you argue with scripture? Mm -hmm. And so people are easily intimidated by it because, well, I don't know what they're telling me is backed up by scripture. So I guess they're right. And I must be wrong. I mean, I don't really know the Bible that well, so um, I must be wrong. And it's, mm -hmm. so it's very, very easy to fall into the trap of spiritual abuse. Mm. So in terms of, is there um, particular vulnerabilities in terms of are the persons who are more likely to fall into the trap of, of spiritual abuse, as you said, or is it anyone? Um, well, I think, People who are insecure in general are always going to be more vulnerable to any kind of abuse. If you're insecure, if you have a low sense of self-worth, you're going to be looking to other people who you think are more valuable. Maybe they're a leader or for whatever reason you think that, you know, maybe they're rich and you're poor. Uh, maybe they're educated and you're not. So you give other people um, power over you. Um, and so I think it's easier to be uh, abused spiritually because of those reasons. But I think really anyone, I've talked to people uh, with, with all kinds of abuse who they say, you know, Remy, I, I didn't, I will, growing up, I was very self-confident. I had a very good self-image. I wasn't 
shame-based or insecure. Mm -hmm. But then I married someone who every day they berated me, they put me down, they told me that I was ugly, they told me I didn't know anything, they, they told me that if it wasn't for me, you'd be, you'd be just a piece of dirt. And over time, they just stripped away all their sense of worth. And so they, because of the abuse, they became shame-based and mm -hmm. insecure and feeling inadequate. So I really think that um, abuse can happen to anybody, but if you start out insecure, you're probably a little more vulnerable to it. Mm, okay. Okay. So believing that persons might be more superior than you um, in particular areas. Right. All right. So in terms of how do we identify an abusive situation? I mean, sometimes persons have strong personalities, as you said earlier, with your experience. Um, you know, you found that you didn't necessarily connect with the new pastor, but it didn't necessarily mean he was an abusive pastor. How can we determine that the situation we are in is abusive, is spiritually abusive? Yeah, well, like I said, it, it can be subtle. Sometimes it's obvious, um, and so there's there's no discernment required, but sometimes it's very subtle. So I think in my book, I have a, a checklist of some symptoms of a top toxic leader. So if you don't mind, I thought I could just mention a few of them to yes, you. Yes, please, please do. Um, one of them is that the, the leadership has very little accountability. So they, they don't have to answer to anybody. Um, so I think spiritually abusive people don't want anyone telling them what to do. They don't want to submit to anybody. So if there's no one over... You know, if, if no one has any say over that leader, that's just something to be wary of. And mm -hmm. like in my church, I answer to a board, uh, we call it, well, it would be a board of elders in most churches. So yeah. I report I report to them. They they are really my bosses. And they can, they can vote me, I mean, they can vote me out of the church if they wanted to. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's a, that's an important structure to have in place. And when, when that structure isn't in place, uh, and that person, that leader has sole authority, that's kind of a scary situation because you're really subject to whatever it is they they say. Now, that doesn't mean that they're a bad person. Yeah. It just means it's something to be wary of. Okay. Understood. So that's one thing. Uh, another thing I'd look for is um, it, how do they respond in, under pressure? You know, do they do they break out in anger? Do they Are they quick to anger? Do they are they quick to defend themselves and come up with excuses or are they willing to look at their faults and say, you know what, I think that's a good point. I, I do what you're saying and I'm sorry for that. You know, please forgive me. I, I want to change. If you see that humble spirit, that's a good sign. But if you see an angry, defensive, counterattacking kind of attitude, it's like, well, wait a minute. That's and, and you and you might justify it and say, well, you know. And if, of course, they quote, they're going to quote scripture why they're right. So then you're intimidated and you go, well, you know, they did quote the Bible and I don't know the Bible as well as they do. So maybe they had a right to be angry. Just be really careful uh, to not always excuse people, you know, just take it for what it is. If they have if they have inappropriate anger, that might be a sign that they're an abusive person. So inappropriate behavior means, you know, lashing out on people, you know, could you speak a little bit more to the inappropriate behavior in terms of examples? Yeah, I think lashing out is a good term okay. where they, um, they are harsh with their words. They're quick to condemn. They're quick 
to dismiss someone or to not listen to what they have to say. Um, they will say something, let's say maybe uh, they're not speaking against you, um, they're speaking about someone else to you, and they, are, they say really bad things about another person to you. Mm. And, you and, and maybe you think to yourself, wow, I, I wonder if when I'm out of the room, they say those bad things about me, because I sure wouldn't want them saying those things about me. So it just gives you that uncomfortable feeling when you see that they're saying things that are really derogatory about other people that that isn't casting other people in a positive light. Mm -hmm. yeah. Another thing uh, to look for is are they are they trying to manipulate people? Are they? Can you tell that they're not? Uh, rather than just being straightforward and saying what they mean to say, but they're subtly trying to work people you know, to control them to do what they want them to do, maybe by quoting scripture or by intimidating them in some way or calling them out in front of other people. Just little tactics that we and they might be subtle or obvious, but they're trying to to use their 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 skills, so to speak, to manipulate people to do what they want them to do. Mm -hmm. So those those are just some of the things that you can look for. Um, to decide maybe is there something wrong going on here? Yeah. So one of the things that I heard coming out a lot is intentionality. <clears throat> Do you, is it that spiritual abusers are intentional about the things that they're doing? So they want power, they want control. So they're purposely um, seeking to manipulate. Well, I, yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, I'm sure there are some people out there who are intentionally trying to uh, control and manipulate. I, th I personally think that a lot of people are spiritually abusive unintentionally. I think in their limited view of ministry and God, they are actually thinking that they're doing God a favor by intimidating people to obey God. Like, well, I'm only doing this for your for your best interest. You know, if if you would pray an hour every day, that would be best for you. And you would show God how much you really love him. So you should pray an hour every day, right? Yeah. So in their mind, they're they're challenging you to do something great for God. But in reality, they're really kind of breaking into your personal space and trying to control you and and removing, you know, trying to take away your, your free will. You know, what, what good is it if you pray every day and for an hour if you're just doing it to keep your pastor happy? That's not good. You know, if you pray an hour every day, that's great, but I'm hoping that you're doing that because you want to, because you feel inspired to, and you're really connecting with God. Yeah. That's, that's how, that's, as a pastor, that's what I want to I motivate people to serve God. I don't want to make them feel obligated to feel to serve God. Yeah. And so this subtlety can be that you know just a kind of underlying pressure that isn't necessarily something that you hear in the words, but it's you know just right. kind of this feeling is is that something that you found to be true? Yeah, and it's something so it's something that's being implied by the right. words. And right. I think one of the reasons it's kind of what people call crazy making. It makes you crazy because you can tell that this person, you know, possibly really loves God and they're really passionate for God. Yeah. And so it's, you, you know that they are trying to serve God, but you also know that they're putting this 
uncomfortable pressure on you. And so it gets really confusing to you as the, what I would say, the victim of abuse, because it's not obvious. It's, it's, not, it's not blatant. It's not like they're coming out to, to actively hurt you. That's not their intention. Mm -hmm. But that is the result. Even though it's not their intention, that is the result. And um, they, you need to, um, you need to just be able to call it what it is. And hopefully that person will be able to see what they're doing as well. In your book, what you spoke about were some of the traits of a, of a, a spiritually abusive leader. And you had spoken about a narcissistic leader and an insecure leader. I know you spoke a little bit to the insecurity earlier. Yeah, well, I think narcissism and insecurity kind of go hand in hand. So if a person is insecure, they don't feel like they they're they're significant if they don't feel like they have much value in life there's there could be something that drives them to be the center of attention and so uh, that can often be the seedbed or the the garden for narcissism because people and, and again it's not conscious but what they're driven to become important they're driven to have control and to have power and to be the center of attention. And so that's where that narcissism comes. And really it's, it's power at all costs. They'll do whatever is necessary. They'll say whatever they need to say and do whatever they need to do to become the center of attention. So they personally can feel valuable. Okay. So that's where that it's narcissism is often rooted in a deep insecurity. And so people crave they, they crave uh, to be adequate and to be powerful, so they uh, will use other people to make them feel powerful and adequate. Mm. Also, you spoke about the whole issue of a conspiracy of silence um, and, you know, the desire to have a kind of uniformity. I mean, I think it's unity, but it ends up perhaps being uniformity in the in the congregation within the group. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Please? Yeah, well, that was something that I observed in this church that I mentioned down the road for me. I was shocked that longtime mature Christians, uh, even elders on this in this church. Um, I, I remember asking one friend of mine, I said, <laughs> You've been a Christian for 30 years. You're an elder in the church. Why didn't you confront this pastor? He said, well, Remy, I thought about it, but no one else was saying anything. And I didn't want to be, I thought maybe I was wrong. I thought maybe uh, I was, you know, not judging the situation rightly. And since no one else was saying anything, I didn't want to be the bad guy in the room to bring it up. So that's what I mean by a conspiracy of silence, that it's again it's not intentional it's that it's not that kind of conspiracy mm -hmm. it's just like no one wants to be the the first person in the room to to talk about the elephant like that's why that's where that phrase elephant in the room comes from no one wants to talk about it no one or that other you know figure of speech we talk about the king has no clothes yeah. no one wants to be the guy to point out the fact that the king doesn't have any clothes mm -hmm. uh, if someone else mentions it you might jump in but yeah. you don't want to be the first person yeah, and especially because it's so subtle, you know, it's hard to right. sometimes identify, is this really happening or is it not? Is it just me? Is it my perception? Or is it right. that really is objectively happening? And if you see everyone right. not seeming like they are, you know, affected, then perhaps it, it yes, I could see how it could lead to 
um, personal doubt, you know? Yeah, we all, have, we, all, we all have so much self-doubt. And so that's where our self-doubt gives the other person too much uh, leeway to keep doing what they're doing. You know, God requires us to, you know, be in unity. Um, and I saw where some of what your book was talking about is the desire for our unity, but it really ends up becoming uniformity in terms of people are conforming to behaviors and not necessarily being um, internally transformed because they are trying to live up to a certain standard. Right. They're, they, you know, after a while, people start to realize what's acceptable behavior mm. and the the leader is the leader is you know promoting a certain way of behaving and and they're usually very insistent and they're very judgmental of people who don't follow that behavior mm -hmm. and so people start to see that and they go well you know i don't want to be the the person who's called out i don't mm -hmm. want to be the person who's blamed and made to look stupid mm -hmm. so i just I'm no dummy. I'm just going to do what this leader tells me to do. And that way I'll never get in trouble and I'll, I'll never be made to look foolish. Mm -hmm. And everyone, everyone starts to think that way. And so that's where that conformity comes. It's not unity. It's just everyone's trying to save, save their face mm -hmm. and save their behind mm -hmm. from getting uh, <laughs> criticized. I guess in some instances, you know, um, as Christians, sometimes because we are turned, told to turn the other cheek and, um, not respond to um, or to respond to our brothers with brotherly love and be forgiving that sometimes we don't necessarily see it as necessary to speak up and to to speak about some of these issues but what do you believe are some of the underlying beliefs that drive this kind of um, abusive situation or system? Uh, well I think like I said I think it has a lot to do with the person's insecurity okay. and their need for control and power Mm -hmm. So that's that's really at the root of abuse. Okay. Scared people who who need to have control over others to feel important. Mm -hmm. Yeah. How how has it happened? What how are they able to use the scriptures to influence persons? Yeah. Oh, um, that's a good question. I had to actually have to think about that. I I uh, yeah. You know, it's so easy to take scripture and to use it to your own benefit. Mm -hmm. And to you know you can you know as people have said you can you can justify just about anything with the Bible if you want to, mm -hmm. and so I think that they will will take something that maybe uh, was meant uh, to not to be literal, mm -hmm. and they'll 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 quote it in a, as if it was literal like you have to do this or well, an extreme would be when Jesus said you know if if you uh, you should cut off your hand if you don't want to sin, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So they can they they could take something like that and they could quote it um, about being really serious for God, and we've got to be really serious for God, and you have to be willing to cut off your hand if you're not going to sin. And it's mm -hmm. it's just taking scripture out of context is what they'll do. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So in terms of uh, our response, you know, I spoke a little bit earlier. You know, just in terms of it's easier for us to be silent, you know, um, at times because of some of what the scripture says or what some of what we believe the scripture says. Um, would you say there are additional reasons why people are silent um, and they don't speak up? 
Well, there's actually, I've mentioned some already, but there's actually a chapter in my book where I talk about that. One that I've already mentioned is just this sense of self-doubt. Yeah. That you're you're so full of doubt about yourself. You like I've mentioned, you don't think you know the Bible that well. You maybe you haven't been a Christian that long, so you're always willing to give the other person the benefit of the doubt. So that's one thing. Yeah. I think another thing that that's often used against people is that they're being rebellious, and that's that's that might be the first card that the abusive leader. In fact, that's one something I'd look for if to decide if this person is abusive or not, if they're always talking about you or other people being rebellious, to me that's just a, a real red flag that they're abusive and they're trying to use that against you because no one wants to be abusive and that's one of the reasons we won't confront people is, well, oh my, I, I, I don't want to be considered rebellious yeah. and so you'll, you'll be quiet for that reason. Yeah, yeah. I know. Another big reason is people don't want to lose their friends. Um, you know, I, I, I remember um, years ago when I was a part of an abusive church, I had uh, a number of friends and I eventually had to leave that church and because I couldn't agree with the abuse that was happening. Yeah. And it was a real time of grief for me because I lost all my friends that were yeah. a part of that church. And a lot of people just realized, like, you know, if, if I leave the church or if I if I object to what's happening here, I'm going to lose my friends and I can't afford to do that. Yeah, especially if this is perhaps your main community, you know, where you've yeah. been nurtured um, and, you know, made the most connections, where you fall back. Yeah. And because of, because of the uh, intimidation factor, a lot of times the leader, the abusive leader will say, you know, if, if you don't agree with me or if you leave this church, you're going to lose your salvation. And again, if people aren't convinced of their own salvation, that's very uh, intimidating. It's like, well, I don't want to lose my salvation. I mean, if maybe maybe this leader's right. Maybe, you know, I, I can't afford to be wrong on this issue. Yeah. So I guess I better stay here. Mm -hmm. um, another one is that you, you might fear that you can't make it without your, these spiritual leaders. Maybe you've become very dependent upon your leaders and they, you know, they've really worked their way into your mind and you look to them for everything. It's like after a while, you can't even make a decision without checking in with them first. Mm -hmm. And so you start to think about that and go, you know what? I, I don't know if I can live my life without their spiritual input. And yeah. so that that can really intimidate you. And then I would say uh, maybe the, the last one I would mention is just that maybe it's not worth your time. Uh, maybe you just go, I, this is too complicated. I, I don't really know how to approach this. I don't know how to deal with this. This is kind of beyond my pay grade. Mm -hmm. And so you just kind of throw up your hands and say, I, I'm not going to deal with this. Yeah. So once we identify that we are in a spiritually abusive situation, you know, how should we respond? Well, I, in, in my book, I talk about, I kind of boil it down just to two, two simple things you can do. Uh, you can either uh, stay mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and uh, confront the, the abuse, or you can leave. We've come to the end of our fourth episode and part one of Spiritual Abuse. We thank you so much for listening to Life and Godliness with Joe on Arrow Internet Radio. We ask you to join in with us next week Sunday as we delve further into how we should respond, how to heal, 
and whether a church or ministry can recover from spiritual abuse. If you believe that you are in a church or ministry that displays some of these characteristics, I encourage you to purchase Remy Diedrich's book, Broken Trust, to learn more about the issue, or speak to a trusted friend or counselor outside of the church. Thank you so much for joining me on the show. You may follow me on Instagram at journeyingwithjoe, that is J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-I-N-G-W-I-T-H-J-O on Instagram and on Facebook at handle J-O-U-R-N-E-Y-I-N-G-W-I-T-H-J-O number one as I share information and resources on spiritual abuse. See you next week and God bless. your heart.